Bros. It's the Not Another Football Podcast. We're your host, Greg. Can't be here, unfortunately, today. Uh, Mike and JP. JP, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. We're, it's, it's a two-man operation. We're running cover two today. So um, Greg is out enjoying his much-earned time off. So he has to put up with figuring out what we said a week later. <laughs> We're going to talk so much mess about him. It's going to be great. All the Ravens talk. Just kidding. I won't subject our fans to that. <laughs> it's going to be an hour of that. Let's go, baby. Um, how's How have you been this last week? I know it's been six days since we talked. <laughs> it's wedding season. So, like, I am just in the midst of it. We are in the throes. These, like, mid-September to early November is just... It's madness for everyone in our age range right now. What about you, Mike? You know, I, I miss those those wedding season days. No, I'm kidding. We, we're in this, we're in the same one. Um, luckily we don't, we don't have too many this year. Last year was our, our big wedding year, but recently, you know, we're just buckling down, continue paying for our, our wedding next year. So that's, that's what we've been up to. <laughs> Ooh. Now, Mike, I know you said you had a, you had a good question for us to talk, to lead off today's show with. So what do you got? Yes. Yes. So I was, uh, I was curious who, Actively playing now, do you feel is a Hall of Famer? And I'm not talking like first ballot or a ballot, but like will eventually be in the Hall of Fame. It might not necessarily be for as flashy as they are, because there are several people who make the Hall of Fame on later ballots because of their contributions to the game. So I'm very interested to hear your perspective on this. So obviously we have the quarterbacks, but I I, I want to do this. I want to take this question out of the quarterback realm because obviously we have Brady and Rogers, Mahomes. Like they will be super. They they will be first ballot Hall of Famers, but I want to flip it um, to a non quote unquote skill position. Um, and I think the, the, the obvious answer should be Aaron Donald. Every time the amount that this man has put forth on tape and on paper has been absolutely mind blowing. The fact that he can put up um, Lawrence Taylor numbers from a D tackle position is absurd. And yes, there was all that hype behind, J.J. Watt when he was doing his thing and, you know, oh, this is the best thing we've ever seen. Aaron Donald has done it differently because Aaron Donald is also a lot smaller than J.J. Watt. So the the absolute game record that he is, and I think everyone was was like, well, will he get the Super Bowl to help solidify his case, yada, yada, yada. But I think even without winning the Super Bowl last year, the amount of dominance he's had and just looking at it on film, there's no question that surefire Hall of Famer first ballot, it's going to be Aaron Donald. And I think that's that's a fantastic pick. He, his just his his breath and depth of he work. He literally trains that, with knives. That's all you need. Send him and his knives. He looks like he has some King Hawaiian rolls hanging out under his under his his shirt. It's not just like normal lineman stuff. Yo, like I don't I don't what I don't understand is this man has an eight pack as a D tackle. Yeah. Like you have no right being that buff None. and playing defensive line. It's it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. It's he's not from this planet. I'm 100% convinced that Aaron Donald is an alien. There's no one to refute that right now. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think I'll say on the D line, too, but I'll go with Von Miller. I think that he's had, you know, and, and perhaps there have been seasons where he hasn't produced in the same way that Aaron Donald has. But his longevity and his ability to produce on different teams has been incredibly impressive. And sure, you know, he had. The way they're playing, absolutely. So yeah, I, I'll I'll stick with Von Miller and I'll I'll double down on that and say you know I'm I'm excited to see how he ends up 
not just this year, but in the next couple of years, because it seems like he'll be in Buffalo for, for a good stay. So, yeah, I, I agree. And that kind of leads us. Let, let's take this into league news. Um, so we have an injury update. I want to talk about some non-concussion stuff before we break into the concussion things. Um, two of the bigger injuries coming out of this week. Um, we have Rashad Penny, the starting running back for the Seahawks, break his leg um, late in the third quarter of the Seahawks Saints game. We also have Baker Mayfield going down with a sprained ankle, which looks like it's going to keep him out probably about four to six weeks, but he's not going on the IR, which is an, an interesting development. And you also have Jimmy Ward going out um, with an ACL injury, which looks like he'll miss the rest of the year. And then we have Marcus Williams dislocating his wrist in a Sunday night matchup. We have a lot of defensive injuries and you know some offensive injuries. We'll save the, the Baker Mayfield talk for later because we have some more coming on that, but Mike, I'll ask you outside of the the Marcus Williams injury, which one of these injuries is gonna is gonna create some havoc for teams? The one I was actually looking to talk about today was Rashad Penny. Um, you know, I have been a big Penny buyer since he came out of San Diego State, and he's really just needed an opportunity to lead that backfield. There's there have been guys in front of him, guys behind him who are always pressing him and, and keeping up with him. And it hasn't been helped by his injury history, unfortunately. And so this was really the season where he was going to take the lead reins in that backfield. Um, and even though they drafted Kenneth Walker and, and he's again pressing him, it just, it was, it was pennies for the taking. And I picked him up in a, in more than one fantasy league. I am a big believer. It is just, it's heartbreaking to, to see, to be honest with you, man. And and I just, I wish that there were better rehab capabilities that we have with like repairing some of these, these injuries now. Um, but I wish that the rehab, it was, was, was catching up and, and that you see players be able to bounce back and have these, these long careers uh, despite multiple injuries. And again, saying that Penny's is going to miss significant time. And I really hope that he's able to come back um, eventually from, from this, but it, it, it's a gut check heartbreaking to, to, to see. Um, how about you? Anyone else stand out to you? Yeah, I was, I'm, I'm going to piggyback on that, Rashad Penny, just because we saw such a breakout at the end of last year. And yes, they did draft Kenneth Walker as kind of like a, hey, we're not we're not so sure. So it, it's tough to see Rashad Penny go down like that. I think that the one of the bigger ones that we're going to have to really wrestle with is the injury in San Francisco with, with Jimmy Ward going down. Um, I think that he, I think it's such yeah, a huge it's such a, a killer for that that secondary um, as just as they were looking to get healthy Joey Bosa was held out precautionary you know they were already up 30 to 15 in that game so it wasn't really much to have him in the game but for a San Francisco squad which I definitely think can take that can take control of the NFC West this year with the Rams falling off as hard as they have been I think it's very interesting to see what's going to happen with Jimmy Ward and how that affects that that secondary which is so important for the amount of pressure that they bring. Obviously, you have that defensive line that's going to bring a lot, but when they send you know, Fred Warner, when they send those linebackers, they put a lot of pressure on those DBs to, to make up for that. So I think the Jimmy Ward injury is going to be something that's really going to play a pretty significant role in that secondary moving forward throughout the season. I know there are quite a few other injuries that we could talk about, but we got to keep moving, unfortunately. And I think another another thing to, to chat about with league news is really refereeing. Um, and I think that we are kind of getting to a tipping point with 
not just the fans kind of being fed up with refs because they've been fed up for refs since the game was invented. But now I think we're also seeing uh, teams and players and coaches and other aspects of the NFL diaspora who are now kind of recognizing this real drop off in refereeing that we had. Um, and perhaps it's me and, and I want you to chime in on this, but growing up, it always felt like, yes, there were bad calls here and there and makeup calls here and there and refs were under the, under the uh, microscope on, on things. But I, as long as I've been a football fan, I don't remember it ever being this bad. And I don't remember it ever impacting games as much as it has just in these last three weeks, specifically talking about roughing the passer penalties um, and holding calls and non-calls. Where do you, where do you fall on this? So I think it's, I think it's connected even to our last topic, right? We talked about the, we, we set aside the concussion discussion for a quick second, but to directly relate the roughing the passer calls to what we're seeing with referees is I think the biggest issue is the inconsistencies. The inconsistencies are what drive fans wild is that you look at, for example, the Tua injury where he caught, where we had the upsetting concussion. There was no penalty called on that play. That was not a roughing the passer. That was just a football play. And as terrible as the outcome was, that's how it's always been. Yet you fast forward a week and you're seeing plays that are routine football plays that happen all the time. It is impossible to legislate out of the game. Particularly, I want to talk about Brady Jarrett. Cover your ears because we're talking about that play on Tom Brady. But it just it's so baffling to me that that is called. I did not know you could rough the passer when the passer still has the ball. It's just it's frustrating to me to see the inconsistencies when you're trying to implement new rules. And I get that player safety is of import. And we want to make sure that while this is a violent contact sport, you have to be able to call the game with some sort of consistency because then you begin losing essences of your game. This is different than the the situation where we had back, you know, five, 10 years ago with the, the discussion of, you know, hitting a defenseless receiver. The issues in that game were we're, we're seeing more injuries related to people going across the middle and, you know, stereotypical like Ray Lewis hits, the John Beeson hits, the Brian Erlacher hits, where you're getting punished if you come across the middle. I feel like this is completely different. Now we've pushed to a point where we're changing the outcome of games based on routine football plays, because in that game, the Falcons and Bucks game, that's a late fourth quarter play. That is the third down, puts them out of field goal range, gives the Falcons the ball back down six points to go back and put, to go down the field and potentially tie the game. But you give them that call, which is a terrible call. And you also miss the fact that Brady tried to kick the player after the play. That's the second time that game he had tried to kick somebody, which is ridiculous and immature and ugh. It changes the outcome of games. We saw this happen with very questionable calls where we don't get an actual explanation of why are you calling this play the way you are. When I look at the next channel, I see the same exact play not being called. I think that's where we're beginning to see discrepancies. The The numbers may come up and down, and as the league tries to implement new emphasis on calls, roughing the passer is one where you're going to constantly get a lot of pushback because you're... These are normal plays. These are football plays. How else are you supposed to bring a quarterback down in the pocket? Particularly as quarterbacks are evolving, looking at Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson, even taking it a few years back. This was the whole controversy with Cam Newton is how do you treat him? Do you treat him as a runner? Do you treat him as a thrower? And that's why you saw Cam didn't get a lot of calls. And I think it's important to note, too, that the league came out today and tried to clarify around these calls and saying, 
know, they want to protect the quarterback and they want to, if he's in a passing set and, and is a clear passer, he's going to get more protection. But then that just begs the question, when does that transition happen? Because for certain players and certain quarterbacks, there's no gray area between when they're in a passing set and when they're in a running set versus some of these other more athletic quarterbacks who can fluidly go from throwing on the run to being 20 yards downfield in the blink of an eye. And I think it it is imperative for the league to clarify this because right now you're seeing a fault line start to expand between the players who are getting calls like that and the players who aren't. And it is pretty clear that more mobile and athletic quarterbacks who are able to transition faster are not getting those calls despite being sacked. I will also say that in the Sunday night game, when Joe Burrow was sacked, it is the same exact motion that you're seeing in these games, like with when Brady got that roughing the passer call. And there's no, like, how are you going to differentiate a pass set getting sacked versus a pass set and roughing the passer. And I really think that the league needs to come out and clarify that, especially to their refs and especially to the people who are making significant calls. And I think the most egregious one of all happened last night in the Raiders chiefs game. I mean, Chris Jones, it's a perfect play. You wrap up, you, you go down. He even puts his hands out to stop from falling, putting all of his weight down on him. And that's a that's a huge third down play, which ends up going the other, which ends up extending the Raiders' drive. So you have to you have to begin to wonder like at what point are we taking the football out of football? And I know this sounds like a very like complainy fans version, but there needs to be some level of consistency in these calls. And particularly even looking back on that Chiefs games, which leads to the next kind of point of emphasis is like you see Micah Parsons tweeting about it. It's the lack of holding calls in in big games. And yes, we know the age, like the age old adage of there, you can find holding on every play. Yes. But when it's blatant as that in a game, in a game clinching situation, you have to be able to pull the flag. And I think that's where sometimes you see it in other sports, like, oh, clock's running down. I'm not going to call that foul. But when it's as blatant as it was in that, that um, third down play at the end of the game, you have to be able to call that call because those are the those are calls that are going to change games. Absolutely, and that's that's a fantastic point. And I think you're right in the sense that holding could be called on every play, but when it's most egregious and not called, it only emboldens holding around the league. It's almost like refs don't understand how detailed these film people get for teams. Like they're looking at everything. And I think this is one thing that I'm a big fan of. You can learn a lot about your sports from learning from other sports. And I think one thing that the NBA has done correctly was release uh, two-minute reports where they will break down and release for public the abilities and the way that refs have handled the last, the final two minutes of every NBA game. So you can see, oh, you know, we saw that, that on this play, the ref missed this call. Not only does that hold you accountable as a referee, knowing that you're going to have those uh, those reports released, but it also allows you the opportunity to learn from them. Because I feel like a lot of things is we get we get to the point where oh we don't want to be held we don't want to be held blame or we can't admit that we're we're wrong in the situation because it could affect the outcome um, of how our league is perceived. But also at some point you have to have accountability, and when that accountability becomes comes growth, and I think that's something that is so absent from the NFL and a lot of things that they do. So I think that is definitely something 
we can learn from other leagues. And great point as always, JP. And I know we could sit here and drag the refs for probably another five hours, but um, let's move on to the week five recap and, and some of the biggest takeaways that, that we saw. I think this was a, a, a week where we reestablished that we know nothing. <laughs> I think you're seeing games and outcomes that you're seeing so many different weird results and just realizing that a football is an oblong shape and therefore the bounce is unpredictable. Such are these games, particularly looking at games. Like you can do everything that you possibly can, but you can end up like the jets and the dolphins, right? Where looking at concussions, right? Teddy Bridgewater first play of the game goes down and under the new concussion protocols, we now have the ataxia put in and he's done for the day, whether or not he's actually being diagnosed with a concussion. So I think that's, it just shows like, we don't know what we don't know, right? We think about the lions, the lions had number one offense coming into the season. Um, shut out. Right. So we have so many interesting things. I, I don't think that we can come away with a sense of what's real and what's not. I, I will say there's one big takeaway is I think that the I think that Dable has turned around the Giants and I owe you directly, Mike Champagne, an apology. Um, because you talked about it in the preseason, saying that the Giants were gonna come in second in this division and you thought that there was gonna be a big turnaround. You were absolutely right. Well, I, I do appreciate that and, and perhaps some of it is some of it is luck because I, I thought that the Giants receivers would be a little bit more involved um than they are, but I am just Hey, I'm glad to see Saquon back to being doing Saquon things. And and honestly, that that roster was built around him. And it's nice to see them be able to leverage that. Perhaps it's it's the fresh blood at, at, at coach and, and um, in other areas of the organization. I think I think what there's something that you said there that the team was built around Saquon. And I think what really helps establish that is that Dable is not asking Daniel Jones to be something he's not. He's athletic. He, he can he can run the ball. He has, you know, speed to get outside of the pocket, but he's designing plays that are meant for Daniel Jones. Not some system, not forcing the quarterback into the system, but designing the system to feature and highlight the quarterback in ways that need to be highlighted. And you were absolutely you're you're absolutely spot on when we talked about in the preseason that this isn't this is something that Dable is going to excel at. And you can see in other areas where there are deficiencies in that, where you're not building your scheme around your quarterback and you're causing a lot of issues and you're not really putting yourself in situations. You can talk about it with Russ in, in Denver. You can talk about it with Mayfield in Carolina. You can talk about it um, particularly with Justin Fields in Chicago. You, When you're putting your quarterback in the right systems and placing it towards them, you're going to see a lot of growth. Just look at the Jags with Trevor Lawrence this year. Look how bad that was last year, and look how good he looks this year. Granted, he's still learning, but this you're going to have to treat this year as a second rookie and season I think that's, for him. That's a fantastic point. And I think something that, that almost leads directly into our next topic with the Jags specifically is that they let their coach go, but kept so much of that young core and were able to build off the, the limited success that they had under someone who clearly had no place coaching in the NFL. And so when we're looking at college coaches moving into the NFL, there is constant discussion about whether or not they're going to be successful or how they are successful and how they exist and the differences between the two. 
Matt Rule, another one of those coaches who was phenomenally successful at the college level and even up to last season was getting offers at the yin-yang to come back and coach college. Unfortunately, seeing him let go by very impatient David Tepper, um, I'm interested to see what your response is to that, but also in recognizing that when I say impatient, I'm talking about somebody who wants to win now and recognizing that they aren't quite there with the staff that they have instead of blaming it on the players, which is what I will give him credit for before we go into this next topic. But JP, please, the floor is yours. Talk to me. What happened? What's going on? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think it was around, I want to say like 930 central time. And I could hear the shouts in St. Louis from Charlotte of joy. And I think it was a symptom of he was in too far over his head. And what made Matt rule so successful in college is he preached. I can change the culture. I can fix things. I can, I can make things better, but the systems in which, we allow NFL teams to operate is not the same in college, right? We look, you, you hit it perfectly on the head when we're talking about Urban Meyer and how that doesn't work and that a lot of that doesn't translate. There aren't a ton of coaches who translate very well from college to the NFL. I mean, even the greatest college coach of all time, Nick Saban, which even though that hurts me to say sometimes, he was a failed NFL head coach. He did not succeed with the Dolphins. So I think it's emblematic of Tepper was – coming in with off the the very upsetting exit and upsetting in that he did atrocious things and was a very wrong and creepy individual in that term of upsetting when Jerry Richardson was um, pseudo forced to sell the team he wanted to come in and he wanted to be this change the culture guy I want to fix everything he fired Ron Rivera he didn't bring back I mean he he fired Ron Rivera after a relatively short lease comparatively and you began to see so much change, right? We got rid of Cam. We lost um, we lost some players to retirement, looking at Julius Peppers and Luke Keekley. Um, what was really what was really troubling is the way he tried to do it. He tried to take that kind of approach of, I'm going to both at the same time be cutthroat businessman and create a new corporate culture um, within this within this paradigm that we have in Carolina. And I think what's really, really troubling in this is that you pick the wrong guy and you allowed that person way too much leeway because once you begin losing players, it it can be a really good thing to hire coaches that are not exactly X, X's and O's people. We talked about this with Harbaugh. We talked about this with, I mean, Tomlin was a little bit different, um, but you, you missed on so many great opportunities for hires. And I think that's what really struggled, what continues to struggle. And I think that, Carolina is going to be it's going to be a rough rest of the season. We're going to have a probably top 7 draft pick like we have had. But what the most emblematic issue and stat that I take away from the the Matt Rule era is his inability to coach and to bring in offense. He was 1 and 25 when a lot, when the opposing team scores more than than 17 points. But 17 points is a is a bad offensive game in the pros. So if you can't score more than 27 points, like more than 17 points on a consistent basis to beat teams, you're not going to be successful. And 
I understand the, the, the method and the approach. He's like, okay, we're going to rebuild this defense. And you and I have been talking about this all day. So I want to bring you in this in, in here um, in this discussion, because I don't want this to be me rambling, but you have a, you have established core, but you, you have made very poor personnel decisions. So what's the next step? I, I think we're going to have some turbulent times in Carolina. This is not going to be fixed easily, but we talked about this. One of the biggest things that's been trending all all day on Twitter is DJ Moore to the Ravens, DJ Moore to the Ravens, DJ Moore to the Ravens. Will he go to the Packers? Um, I think that there's been a lot of lost trust in the within the facility, and I think that's going to take the right person to bring this back. And I think you have to start I think you have to go with an X's and O's guy. I mean, we're not going to get much better Panther analysis from anyone out there, JP, than than from you. So, you know, I I can understand how frustrating <laughs> it is to watch a team that you care about just make poor choices. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and draw uh, equivalencies to, to any team in the league because the, the Panthers are their own thing. Um, but I had the, the opportunity to watch a game in Carolina um, a couple of years ago. And it's that's such a working town. And they have such a love for their team that it almost felt like a disservice these last couple of years, the product that they were putting out on the field. And that starts that starts at the top. That starts at the top. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And there, there are like institutional things that are going wrong. Like you can, I, I encourage our fans, if you're listening, look up the issues that are going on in Spartansburg with the, the, or not Spartansburg. And I believe it's Rock Hill where the Panthers are trying to build a new home base. And now there's legal issues happening between David Tepper, the Carolina Panthers and the city in that there are defaults on, on, on bank loans there are delinquent payments there are there's a bankruptcy filing going taking place i mean it is there's there's a lot of tension between the panthers and the community and what's one of the most upsetting things is that because everything in, in charlotte is so uniquely charlotte and they there's such pride in that city you watch the you watch the film from from sunday's game and the it it was just as much red for the niners in the in those stands as it was as it was for for the Panthers and the the Niners don't rep like that normally like they are a uniquely like there are few teams that travel as well like that travel like that the Packers the Steelers like those when you think of teams and the Cowboys teams that are ubiquitous throughout America you don't see that as a in in the 49ers you see that when you're going to games on the west coast oh they rep they show up and show out but to to have your home your home field be taken over by a West coast team. It's very emblematic. And it's, and it's, sh- it shows that the city has lost and the fan base has lost faith in particularly in Matt rule, because at the end of the day, they take, they usually, you know, take the head that they can see, but it's, it's, there's a lot that needs to be changed. And I think I will give David Tepper credit on this. The interim coach that he selected, Steve Wilkes, um, got a, got a really unfair shake in, in Arizona with the 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 system that he was he inherited tried to fix and then was immediately shut down after just one season um 
but the the great story from Wilkes is he's born and raised in West Charlotte. He is from the city. He graduated from the city. He was a Carolina defensive back before he became a head coach and then came back to Carolina because that's how much this community means to him. So I think what's going to be interesting, and I think we'll see this play out as potentially more coaches are, are fired throughout the season, is who who you take as your interim is going to dictate a lot about the talent evaluation you're able to have moving forward. Um, we're, we're about uh, two or three weeks away from the trade deadline. So these next two weeks are going to be imperative to whether or not the Panthers decide to move a lot. Um, so I think that having a coach like Steve Wilkes, who has a little bit of head coaching experience, has the ability and has the connections to the community to begin like, repairing like severed even, ties. I think that's even very, important. very important. And, and having had the the really awesome opportunity to spend some time in Charlotte with uh, some of my significant others' uh, relations down there, it, it <laughs> there's nothing that would make the town more excited than to have a decent team back and it they honestly they've earned it they deserve it and i i'm here for all of the positive panthers news that's going to come after this and and i think that this move is just the beginning of of a really great stretch for them and and i'm i'm really hoping so because you know it it not not just that they that they deserve it as a as a franchise but i think that they deserve it as a city and and it's you know I, I'm one of those people that really hates to see like teams that, that really don't deserve additional accolades or awards or anything like that earn them. Um, so <laughs> here I am living in Boston. But, you know, it, it, it really does become so much more about the, the game of football and the way that football impacts and ingrains itself within a community. And, and so I'm very excited to see what they can do in these next couple of months. And um, I think it's going to be, of course, as you said, a time of change, but I think it's also going to be a time of, of renewal. Yeah, and I think I, I I lived through the Jimmy Clausen era, so this is nothing. Like I've I've lived through much worse as a Panthers fan. And what's what's funny is kind of a tie-in back to you know the biggest takeaways from Week Five. I was talking to one of my best friends, um, Matt Rodman, who is a diehard Steelers fan. He comes from the Steelers family. This is the first time that he's ever going to have to realize and be accustomed to having a team that's that is a losing team because it's been so long since they've been under 500 right they they are a they are a a a poster child of consistent success in the nfl as much as you know we have we talk about the afc north on this podcast um i think it's important to recognize like how how good they have been able to be for so long and so consistently same thing with the patriots right um but i do think that the panthers will get will get it back on track i don't think that this is you know we're gonna you know cast ourselves into the abyss of consistent terribleness and only have flashes in the pans, i.e. the Browns and the Jags. But I, I think there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of growing pains. I think that the community of Panthers fans are really excited to move on from this Matt Rule era, particularly because there were so many emotions tied to the previous regime under Ron Rivera, particularly with, with Cam Newton and Steve Smith and like the, the way that those relations were, were mishandled at the end left a really bad taste in everyone's mouths. So I think that this is an opportunity, like you said, for some new things to come our way for some new positivity, some, some regenerated and re, you know, rejuvenated excitement in Carolina. And I think there's a lot of things that are coming that way. I mean, I, I really hope that we can turn this around. 
because we have we have so many good young players. You know, from NC State, uh, yeah, loved 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 him. At Icky, it. Loved the him the at left NC tackle State, that yep. we uh, that we we drafted, yeah. He he posted the highest tackle grade on PFF for tackles this year, and against that really really good 49ers front. So I'm I, I'm excited. I'm excited for what we have in Jeremy Chin and Brian Burns and DJ Moore, McCaffrey. Like we get we get a couple pieces here or there fixed, and we get the right play callers. We can be a playoff team, but I think we just have to realize that we've had some deficiencies in our in our management style, in our coaching style. Um, I still think one of the biggest mistakes was letting Joe Brady go. Um, I think that he turned into a scapegoat for Matt Rule because <laughs> through three games last year, Joe Brady had Sam Darnold looking looking like Cam Newton, running, throwing, doing all these things. But we're back at a situation where we have Ben McAdoo still. And I think one of the more emblematic things, and we'll see what happens under Steve Wilkes because Rule – always wanted to go back to we want to be a hard-nosed football pound the rock but not do it creatively type of guy like old school in the way but we have to realize that we old school doesn't work anymore and even people who take old school mindsets and approaches to it do it in creative ways like you know like the Ravens have done with Greg Roman like Brian Dable has done with Saquon Barkley you have to be inventive and creative in the way that you run your offenses as a whole. I just realized I've been talking so much about the Panthers, and I apologize because I get on y'all about talking about the Ravens like this. So, listeners, this is my one because our, my coach got fired. Let me vent, okay? And I'll, you know, I, I'll, I'll stand up for you though, JP. And I, I never think it, it is wrong to talk too much about the team you know most about because listeners then get such a different perspective than they would in any other place. And I think that's honestly one of the toughest aspects of creating a football podcast is not talking about the team that you like so much because you know, you just know more about them and you care more about the way that they do things. And I think one of the, the supporting arguments that I would have to your discussion is that it really falls back on the Panthers culture and that culture that, was built under the previous regime is so strong that somebody coming in and trying to make all these different changes and do all this stuff wasn't going to be successful based on what had already been existing. Um, but I really think that your and my feel for our teams really drives us into this next discussion about watching games. And we had, we were talking about this earlier off, off, off the pod, but uh, you were saying that you don't really watch Panthers games because you do. I hate to say the term get in your feelings because that's not really it, but you are, you have a different feel for the game when you watch your, the team that you follow so much and you, you absorb so much information about, but when it comes to analytics and their involvement in the sport, how do you feel like coaches in this day and age, the ones that are still there at least are truly accepting, adjusting to the way that analytics have made such a big impact. Yeah, and I think I'm, I've am i always been pro-analytics in the way that I approach it because I feel like data drives innovation, which drives success. Um, I've always been that way about pretty much everything in, in my life. Um, I've always been a big, big numbers person. So I think that there are times and places, I think 
what we begin to to see is a clashing um a clashing of ideologies in that you have some of our some of the younger coaches who use analytics as as gospel versus um <laughs> the older regime which is like guts are my gospel how i feel in the game is how i di- how i dictate it and if you know tradition holds that my gut tells me on fourth and five fourth quarter to the three minutes left i kick the ball or i you know i punt the ball and i let my defense hold i think you have to be able to use analytics and that gut feeling in a combination in order to be successful in the nfl nowadays because you do have individuals like you have patrick mahomes it's fourth and one and you're inside your own 40 go for it right you have the abilities you have the the playmakers and the and the skill matched with the playmaking you have everything that is around you in order to build to build a successful outcome i i do think that sometimes we get a little too big for our britches and we 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 push analytics too far um because that it should not be the end all be all the numbers should not decide it the coach should and that's why it's so important to have a, a a head coach who understands both the analytics portion and the game feel and i think one of the biggest things that i've come to realize is is there is one coach who has married this perfectly. And I think that's Andy Reed Um, because he's understood the context in which he runs his game, the context in which his team is built and when and when not to do it in particular situations. And I think that's very important, but I know you Mike have a very unique kind of perspective on this, given not only your Ravens fandom, but your, your introspectives into the, the research behind why things happen. So I want to hear how you can bring your perspective to this analytics versus game field debate. Well, think, and I, I really appreciate that, that lead in because analytics have been something that I've been harping on since we were in college, looking watching the NFL and, and looking at the way that analytics were, were changing the game then. Um, and, following a team like the Ravens who have leaned heavily into analytics, it has really changed my perspective on the way analytics are um, deployed within games. And I am no longer of the opinion that analytics are a zero sum game. It's never a yes or a no go for it, not go for it. It, there are, (laughs) there are levels to this. And I, I really think that depending on stealing my lines, you are on the field. I'm trying, that man. Is, I'm just trying to be like you, JP. There are levels to this is my go-to. And I know that particularly when my lovely fiance will listen to this podcast, she will probably roll her eyes when you hear when she hears you say there are levels to this. I mean, she has to learn where you got her from. No. Um, <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Just talking about the swag. Um, but to be fair, I do think that analytics are not a zero sum game. And I, I really think that coaches who say there's a 50% chance of this or a 50% chance of that aren't really looking at analytics in the same way as like a 40 to 60% chance of something. I will pound the table for the rest of my life saying that even if you get a positive go for it symbol, it really matters what you call as a play. And that I think is where a lot of coaches are failing in the league. And I think we see that top to bottom, all 32 teams, they might get the the go ahead, let's go for this fourth down, but they aren't necessarily calling the right plays. Sure, a play with an overthrow would look like the right play at the right time. But if you 
as a as a coach, as a player, you have to know your team and your support staff. If you are feeling as though you'll have enough time to get off a deep throw or, or to do something unique on fourth down other than just pounding the rock up the middle, I'm going to – every – so bad. <laughs> And I th- I think we saw I think we saw that perfectly in play in one of the worst football games I think I've ever watched in my entire life in that Thursday night Colts Broncos game like oh oh my oh my god it was atrocious and th- <sighs> I think we need to <laughs> for some reason I think we're just like why are we throwing the ball on fourth and short on the goal line looking at you, Russell Wilson, looking at you, Lamar Jackson. Like, why are we doing this? Run the football. It's particularly when you have when you have time left on the clock. Cause the we saw in both of those in both of those incidents, referring to both of those quarterbacks, you throw costly interceptions. I don't I don't understand it. It is the most mind boggling thing we have we there that's where we come in like yes there are op, there are opportunities like for instance had the both raiders wide receivers not decided that they were going to tackle each other on fourth and <laughs> fourth and one last night um i think throwing the ball on fourth and one late in the game when you have 40 seconds to get the ball in the field goal range yeah you can you can throw the ball then but it's all about context, and I think that's something that you were highlighting that I think is extremely important. You have to have the right context, and that's from your from the person you have snapping the ball to your head coach all the way down. Like all of that has to take into consideration. I think that's sometimes we begin to lose the context. We 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 either take it too far into these people are not people, but rather data points to hey, we're not understanding the probabilities that. Are could that could come with our decision of like hey we should go for two here because it allows us some more some more leeway down the line which brings me back to the falcons bucks game where the falcons did the right thing you're down two touchdowns late in the game you go for two on the first touchdown that you score so that way it puts you in a better situation so i think that's where we begin to see we need to have that context match Um, as you said our context has to match reality in terms of the decisions that we need Let's now take a look towards week six. We've covered everything that we possibly can in week five, from firings to injuries to ref calls and all the bad jokes in between. We have some very exciting matchups, not including the Thursday night game, which looks to be just as bad as last week's. Um, But out of our Sunday games, not including our primetime games, what games are you really excited looking forward to? We have some some really good potential matchups this week. I think it's an excellent lead-in, other than the bad jokes. I'm actually really excited <laughs> this week for, and you're not going to be surprised at this. Um, very excited for the Bills Chiefs. I, it, that's just those are two power teams, and those are two teams atop the AFC. It's going to be a, a, a titan battle. Um, but I think if I'm looking at games outside of kind of those those huge enormous teams playing, um, you know, conference games and things that matter so much, I kind of want to see what the Patriots and Browns are able to to bring to the game or bring to the table. And I'll, I'll expand a little on that. So I think that the Patriots last week having a, an opportunity to topple the number one scoring offense or number one offense in the league was impressive. And I think that their adjustments that they've made kind of during this season have really started to show. I think that 
uh, bringing in kind of fresh blood at quarterback after uh, the unfortunate injury to, to Mac Jones has really kind of lit a fire under the team. And I'm not necessarily sure that Mac Jones gets his job back, but the Browns have made a trade recently for a, an, I think it's an all pro inside linebacker from the Falcons for literally peanuts. Um, which to me shows that they don't have much faith in their first round linebacker. I know we're drawing closer to week 11 for the Browns and it almost feels as if they are collectively holding their breath for this savior to come in and write their season. And I'm not so sure they're going to be able to, I'm not too sad that they are where they are. I don't necessarily think that they're going to turn it around so quickly. And um, I'm interested to see how that game progresses because I think the Patriots are a good litmus test in the AFC as they always have been. Um, so JP, I've given two teams or two games that I'm super excited for this upcoming week. What about you? Where do you, where do you fall in all this? Yeah. So I, I'll go with two as well. Um, and I think it really depends on the availability for this game. So the first one I want to talk about is the Bengals and the saints. I think it's two teams, um, one coming off a very narrowed, narrowly escaped victory with the Saints beating the Seahawks. And then we also have the, the Bengals trying to bounce back after losing to the Ravens on Sunday night. And I think what's going to be really interesting in looking at the Bengals and Saints matchup is how are we going to see the Bengals wide receivers who have been somewhat inconsistent to start the year. That offense has really struggled, particularly with the offensive line that was supposed to be completely rebuilt and designed to help Joe Burrow reach all new heights in terms of, you know, being the next great quarterback in the league. I think what's really going to cause them issues is that the Bengals offensive line is going to end up giving up a lot of sacks to that Saints, uh, that Saints defense. And I think what's going to be really fun to watch is the matchups we're going to get across the board, particularly the matchup. I really, really want to see is, um, not only Marshawn Lattimore against Jamar Chase, but also looking at Cam Jordan versus Lyle Collins on that offensive and defensive line matchup. Because I think that the reason why this game, interesting enough, is the closest spread that we'll see outside of the coin toss that is going to be the, the the Thursday night game. I think that these are two teams headed for a collision course that are going to cause a lot of interesting ramifications moving forward they're both two and three they're both fighting for hope in that division to to upset the division leader and i think that's going to be a really fun matchup to see particularly because it's going to be in the superdome it's going to be uh, it's going to be a party down there in new orleans so i I really hope that the Bengals can show up um, which leads me to showing up being the key point for my second game which is the Vikings and the Dolphins. We don't know who's showing up at quarterback for the Dolphins. So what's going to be very fun to see is how does Mike McDaniels continue to be innovative in his offense and his scheme? Because the reality is even with Skylar Thompson, who is their third string quarterback in the game up until late in the third quarter, the Dolphins were right in there with the Jets being down to their third string quarterback it was 17, 19 and they missed a field goal to go ahead. Um, and then, you know, the wheels fell off because you realize that you have a third string quarterback in the game. So whoever decides to show up and play quarterback for the dolphins is going to be the key determiner of that game. Because if Teddy Bridgewater shows up healthy, or I, I kind of, I don't want to see it, but if Tua if Tua shows up, 
whoever shows up, be it Teddy or or Tua, is going to give the Dolphins that extra juice, which I think will cause the upset. Because right now, Minnesota's favored by three to win that game. But if we get, if we get you know whoopsie daisy Kirk Kirk Cousins coming out again, you're going to see a lot of turnovers. And Mike, I I, I want to ask you this question because. <laughs> It's pretty funny to me. Has there ever been a wide receiver to save a quarterback's career more than what Justin Jefferson has done for Kirk Cousins? I don't I don't think so. Not at all. Maybe except DK Metcalf and Russell Wilson. I mean But not but not even then, because he had he had Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett. But I think the only other one that kind of comes to mind of like wide receiver that has either saved or created someone else's career is Matt Stafford in He's he's only survived because he's had top top tier talent. Because you saw what happened after Megatron left in Detroit, that all went to hell. And you you realize now, looking at the situation with the Rams, he can't throw the ball to anyone other than Cooper Cup. So I think you know, turning back to this this Dolphins game, if Xavier Howard is healthy and shadowing Justin Jefferson, I think it's going to be a bad time for the for the uh the vikings and i think it's going to cause a lot of issues which i think will i i don't i also don't understand how i've become such a dolphins fan since doing this podcast and constantly i don't get it but nonetheless here we are prime time pickums baby i love this segment i have so much fun doing this so to give our audience a recap of our week five pickums um Ironically enough, we have a tie for first place with Greg and Mike, um, both picking three winners. Um, Greg's winners from last week were the Ravens on Sunday night, the Chiefs on Monday night, and his upset pick actually hit with the Jets upsetting the Dolphins. Um, Mike, also 3-1. and one. Good job. He had, the, he had the pick of the worst game of the century in picking the Colts. Um, he also hit with the Ravens and the Chiefs, and then I with a mediocre two and two on the week picking the the winners of the Ravens on Sunday night and the Chiefs on Monday night so as we head into prime time pickums we have our Thursday night game we have the commies the Washington commanders at the Chicago Bears on Thursday night Bears are a one point favorite at home Mike who you got Thursday night a contender for the worst game of the year. I am going to go Bears. And that's not a confident pick. Okay. Um, by the way, I just want to say I did call that the Chiefs were going to win by less than a field goal. Um, so for my picks for this week, and um, I think it's going to be – I think it's because I think a fire has been lit in Washington. Um, Ron Rivera directly calling out his quarterback, saying the reason why they are not contending in the NFC East is because of their quarterback. But I think I think the commanders are going to – are going to come in and I think they're going to win by, I think it's going to be commanders by four. Now let's turn to our Sunday night, which is my number one matchup for the week. Um, when we do our, our games look forward to, we purposely leave out our primetime games, but we have Cowboys at Eagles Sunday night. Philly's coming into this game, a four and a half point favorite at home. Mike Sunday night football, NFC East battle. Who you got? Eagles big. 
with a little more confidence than the last time I picked against the Cowboys because that was more of a, a petty pick. This is, I legitimately think the Eagles are a much better team and will blow the cap off the Cowboys. How about you? So I think the biggest matchup is going to be in this game, the Cowboys defensive line versus uh, the number one offensive line in the league with the Eagles. And I think that the mobility that Jalen Hurts is going to allow um, some some relief of that offensive line, I think that the Eagles are going to take it by a field goal. I think it's going to be a tight matchup. Um, I think what's going to be interesting is to whether or not that secondary can actually stop the Cooper rush train. I don't think it's a situation where I think the hyperbole following Cooper rush has been extreme. I think that the defense is owed a lot in terms of being able to have Cooper rush start four and this year as, as a starter. Uh, I think that the the defense is going to finally meet a match that they're going to have to recognize that they have to they can't send they can't send the dogs like they used to when they're playing the Bengals because the Bengals couldn't get their their run game going. But now you have to account for Jalen Hurts in the run game as well and they haven't had to face something like that yet because they faced a decrepit falling apart Matthew Stafford last week and the same thing you played the Bengals before that and Washington before that where yeah, you're not getting quarterbacks that are going to be able to beat you with their legs. So I think I have the Eagles taking it by three. Um, our last um, primetime pick them before we head into upset picks, we have the Broncos at the Chargers Monday night. Who you got, Mike? Uh, I'm taking the Chargers here. Uh, unless the Broncos like decide a division game is worth playing up for, sh- sure. But no, I just I take the Chargers. I'm not going to go big or small here. I just Chargers money line. Oh, Chargers Chargers money line. I like it. Um, I have the I have the Chargers winning in a blowout here. I think that the the Chargers offense is actually clicking again. Austin Eckler has come back to life after a very disappointing first two or three games of the season. In the last two weeks, he's exploded. Uh, I think Justin Herbert is getting healthier, which is allowing that to cause a lot more relief in that run game. I also think that Keenan Allen might make his return, which is going to absolutely help that wide receiving core. So I think it's going to be um, LA in a blowout. And as our final pick of the week, we have our upset pick. So we typically are using the, the spreads from, from DraftKings for these picks. So uh, Mike, if you don't mind, I will go ahead and start with my upset pick of the week. And I I think my upset pick of the week is going to have to be the Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks come in um, as a a two-and-a-half-point underdog at home against the Arizona Cardinals. And, yes, the Cardinals have have come alive the last. Like, Kyler is playing better, you know. Um, This is two weeks before Modern Warfare 2 comes out, so we don't have to worry about that. So (laughs) I think – what I saw from Geno Smith and what I've seen from, from Geno Smith, I said this jokingly that Geno Smith's the MVP, but he, he's been playing like one. He's been, he's been incredibly good. And I think that even though the Seahawks are two and a half point underdog at home, I think that that offense is, is clicking. I think they've put up 30 points in back-to-back weeks. Um, 
I know everyone last week was telling me, oh, it's the Lions. Both of you last week were saying it's the worst defense in the league. All right, well, they put it up on they put up 32 points on a really good offense last week, a really good defense last week with the Saints. So my upset pick is going to be Seattle over Arizona in Seattle. I think that's a fair pick. Um, I'm not very high on, on Arizona. I'm, um, like you said, two weeks before Modern Warfare comes out, they're bound to have some double XP weekend or something for, for Cold War. Um, so uh, Call of Duty jokes, guys. Get on, the, get on the train. But I think this week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the Dolphins. And, it, 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 you know, a week ago we wouldn't have said this was an up, upset pick based on their record and who, they, who they've beaten. But um, looking at how the Vikings have come on, I think that, that the Dolphins are an underdog in this game. Uh, the spreads would agree with me. So – um, I think the Dolphins will kind of be surprising. And I, I take a lot of what JP said earlier um, to heart. And I think that he makes some, some excellent points um, about how the Dolphins will, will go about stopping, stopping the Vikings. I just um, truly think in my upset pick that they'll be able to execute on those. And that is our primetime pickums for this week. Greg will be back with us next week. So you can hear all of in his insights and get his picks um, for next week's games. So, with that, I want to say thank you to everyone for tuning in this week as we are a person down. I want to remind y'all, please subscribe, rate, review. We want to hear from y'all. The reviews help. Uh, we say this every week. They, We love them. We love interacting with our fans. We love hearing it. I love when I get texts from people saying, oh, I was listening to the pod or, you know, I have coworkers and friends who will text me. You know, oh, I love what you said about this or that. And I know we get RJ blowing up our mentions every week after the Eagles Cowboys game. One way or another, it's going to be charge your phones. It's going to be an onslaught. Um, we want to say thank you all so much. Your reviews mean everything to us. Please leave them in Spotify, leave them in Apple, leave them in whatever platform you're listening to our podcasts on. And as always, tune in next Thursday for another episode of Not Another Football Podcast. Thank y'all, and we'll see y'all next week.